but... he paid more for the fucking costume than he was gonna pay for he was gonna pay more just in extra on the costume than he was gonna pay for sex with her also the idea that a sex worker's like Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of How'd You Like That Movie? Unfortunately, Scott is still away due to that tragic death in his family. Uh, But as we talked about on our last show, the show must go on. And luckily for us, we have our good friend, Mary Galloway, in DigiQueer filmmaker, who's going to actually walk us through a fantastic guest that she's going to introduce. Mary, welcome to the show yet again, now as a co-host. You're already climbing that ladder. Soon you're going to be replacing me. Thanks, you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Super happy to be here. Uh, even more excited because we have the like incredible powerhouse El Maya Tailfeathers writer, director, producer, actor. Um, she's indigenous. She's taken kind of the um, film industry by storm and all of her things. And so I'm just so excited to be here and talk about Slashback. Which is also like a fantastic. Uh, would you refer to it as an indigenous? Because they're Inuit. Uh, what, how do yeah? How do you guys classify it, or how do you classify it? I guess yeah, like Inuit would be the more specific uh, way. I, I think, um, but maybe El Maya will know better because I don't know the director personally. We actually Maya, the director, and Jennifer Podemski. And I were all at a DGC dinner chatting. So I met her briefly, but I don't know the director's lineage, but uh, they are, they are, it is set in like Inuit territory, right? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we start talking about the show and we talk with our guest, uh, why don't you, what, what about you? What have you been doing since we last chatted? Cause you're, uh, so you are, I mean, you, uh, you're a Canadian Screen Award nominee as well, twice. Uh, you were not successful but who cares that's uh, amazing um what have you been doing since then yes so um i am in post-production right now for a new aptn digital series for lumi their digital platform it's like a sci-fi dramedy i would say and it's called d.h and uh, i co-directed that with my lovely lovely indigenous friend um miguin fairbrother and uh so we're in post production for that is probably going to come out towards the end of the years what we're thinking and then i'm in kind of pre-prep for a feature documentary about the couch and sweater um the knitted legacy that the couch and sweaters are and i'm from the couch and nation and um it's a very very meaningful story that I'm really excited to get to tell. I'm in development for a new Crave series. I'm doing the CBC Academy um, Executive Residency Program. Kind of have a lot of plates spinning in the air, but um, a lot of prep and posts. Nothing in production at the moment. Are you done acting, basically? <laughs> no, no. The funny thing is, is that I really don't book acting work as your typical actor does i will audition but i'll very rarely get roles through auditions it's mostly like miguin he asked me to co-direct and he's like and i have a role for you so i was like okay so i acted in that web series i just did it's mostly just friends who will be like hey you want to come act and i'll be like yeah sure or i write myself roles so i love acting i will always take an acting role if, it, if, if i feel called to it but um writing and directing is really what i'm like 
focusing my time on and then acting when an opportunity kind of presents itself. Um, I, and, and speaking of the couch and sweater, I, I was, I lived in Victoria for 12 years. I love those sweaters. Those sweaters are awesome. I think that especially the, if you actually get an authentic one, like you can have it your entire life. You literally, you could pass the thing on like it's the most indestructible yeah. sweater ever. Yeah. I've got my great grandpa's sweater. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty in great condition other than the zipper needs to get re-sewn back on, but they last for decades and um, the knitters right now, as it is, are making about $2 an hour on the sweaters and the wool is just impossible to source on the island. So it's, it's a whole, um, issue that they, they could become extinct eventually if we don't do something about it. So, uh, yeah. So just, and before we move off that topic is, is there a way to ensure that you, as you know, there's a lot of like fakes, right? Because they are such a, like, is there a way to like ensure you are, so first off that the indigenous uh, creators are actually getting the money, not, mm-hmm. you know, someone else and that uh, it's legit. Is there a way to kind of source that properly? It's about where you buy it really. I like you should like people should be buying it directly from knitters or directly from indigenous owned and operated businesses. Likely like if you find one at uh, like kind of fashion store, it's going to be a fake. Um, I can tell because I've been around them my whole life by just looking at them, holding them, uh, looking at the the wool, the zippers, the the way it's built is like very specific to the couch and sweater. They're all in one piece. There's no like sewing on the arms or sewing on the collar. They're knit in one piece and they're, it's like very unique to the couch and sweater. Um, do you, do you have any links that uh, we could possibly throw in our show notes uh, uh, to uh, where to purchase these things properly? Um, yeah, I mean, I can give you my Aunt Dora's Facebook page. She's always knitting and selling them. And um, the documentary will the documentary will have a lot of info on that too. And when that gets going, we'll we should. We should do this again. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. I love it. Leah, you know, uh, we call it uh, shameless self-promotion. That's what we do on the show. Uh, okay. Like, do you want to do, I, I'm so excited to talk to her. So do you want to, you ready to do this? Let's do this. All right. Bring her on. All right. Let's welcome El, El Maya Tailfeathers, everyone. Uh, she has been killing it out there in the industry, taking it over, telling the most authentic genuine heartfelt moving exciting stories uh everything that elmaya does i watch i am a big fan and friend and community member um we cross paths here and there and every time it's always lovely so welcome elmaya tailfeathers hi thank you so much for that super generous and kind introduction um yeah it's really nice to be here i'm i'm happy that we were able to make it happen and also really happy to be speaking with mary in particular today so i'm also a big fan of mary and her work and i think she's a really really important voice within not only the indigenous film community but more broadly in in canada um she's also a bit of like a I don't like to use the term trailblazer because I feel like that's like some weird like settler colonial reference or something. But like she's like forged her own path, which is really admirable. And I yeah, so much respect for Mary. So anyway, happy to be here. So 
uh, do you, before we actually get into your body of work, <laughs> which is extensive, uh, is there anything that you uh, are super excited to talk about right now? Uh, do you have a second season? Of, it's three pines, right? I, not two pines, right? Three, <laughs> yes, three pines. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Amazon has us just waiting. Um, I, I, I wish I knew, but yeah, as of right now, nobody knows if there's going to be a second season. So my yeah. mom, my mom wants a second season. So I don't know. Maybe if that works with Amazon, like Chris's mom says that there needs to be a second season because <laughs> she really likes the show. A lot of moms like the show, including mine. So that's just me. My mom, <laughs> yeah. Moms love the show. So I mean, that's a big market in and of itself. So I'm 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 hoping that um I'm hoping that they move forward with the second season. It was a lot of fun to shoot and wonderful to work with Alfred Molina and you know the rest of the cast, but also just to work with Tracy Deer, who's um really phenomenally talented Mohawk director. Um yeah, so fingers crossed it gets a second season. I don't know. Right now I'm kind of just like waiting in the void like everybody else so tracy dear i mean beans is we did it on our show uh we basically said i don't know why they're not showing this in school it's like Mm. it's like what schindler's list is to the holocaust it's it's such a especially because you get to see it from the side of not the french canadian side right and you Mm -hmm. just get to see that venomous racism uh, in it's such a moving film it's it's beautifully done um what's it like to work with her as a director though like like what's her style we're gonna actually pick on it we're not we're gonna i want to talk to you about a lot of the directors that you have worked with because you're you have worked with the best indigenous directors in the business which also makes them some of the best directors in the business so yeah i i that was kind of one of the reasons i decided to do three pines um often just like Mary, I don't really book auditions, like gigs from auditions. It like never happens. Blah, I, one of those actually, I, I don't, I don't audition. I literally like maybe book 1% if that of the stuff I audition for. So yeah, it's just like, okay, I'm not going to get this, whatever. I'll do it as long as I have fun. I'll send in this self tape. But um, generally I think just like Mary, I had to kind of start making my own work and the work that I do get as an actor is generally through other Indigenous directors. So, um, yeah, people like Jeff Barnaby and Dennis Goulet have considered me. And I think Tracy kind of maybe had some influence in me booking Three Pines. Um, I, I, I went through the audition process and I was really sort of conflicted about the the idea of playing a police officer, just given the relationship and history of, of policing in Canada and Indigenous people. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I saw that Tracy was directing and that she'd had a fair amount of input in terms of um, helping with scripts. She, she didn't she didn't write, but she definitely offered a lot of feedback. Um, so working with her was phenomenal. You know, it's it's, it's a big Amazon Prime show. So there's a big budget and it's definitely the largest sort of mainstream set I've been on. And it was incredible to witness this indigenous woman just like own her power and her craft and, and run the show. Um, And she was so generous in terms of her feedback as a director with the actors. Like she's definitely an actor's director. We would do take after take after take, just trying different ways of approaching the scene. And she had very specific things in mind, um, which I really appreciate. I love the process of collaborating 
And um, often I, I, I just like to work with directors for the sake of watching how they work so that I can hopefully, you know, implement some of that into my own craft as a, as a director. I was going to say, I bet you, you're also an actor's director having <laughs> your experience, which to me is like also how I am. And those are my favorite directors to work with because sometimes directors are speaking a whole other language to the actors and the actors are speaking a different language to the director. And it's just like a, what do you want from me? thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And performance informs so much of the story. And I, I, you know, often I think that kind of gets lost in translation in terms of, um, you know, what goes on screen. There's so much that goes into the aesthetic and the look and the feel. Um, and sometimes the performance aspect of it can really get, can really get lost. And so it's wonderful to work with directors who are really focused on the craft of acting and, and ensuring that the actors are landing all of those notes in terms of the story and moving everything forward. And Tracy's definitely like that. Do you notice a difference between direction for feature film versus direction for episodic television? Um, yeah. <laughs> TV has to move so fast, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's a, it's its own sort of beast. Um, whereas with independent film, it's a it's a different experience and it's coming much more from a, a singular voice in a sense. So uh, and that's my and that's kind of been a, a thing that I've learned to adjust to in this last year with directing um, drama for television is that you don't have the final say as the director. You know, there's showrunners, there's producers, there's the network. Um, and they ultimately have the final say. So there's the director's cut, but then it goes on to others. Um, and so in terms of the process as an actor working on a television set, it's very different from from that of a, of a feature film, because when you're working with the director, you know that it's 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 their vision that you're, you're specifically working toward. Um, whereas in television, it's it's also a whole lot of other people who are, are, are influencing the choices that are being made on screen. So you also mentioned uh, kind of some of the top, like uh, Jeff Barnaby. Is it Denise Goulet? How do you say your name? Dennis. Okay. And then obviously uh, Tracy. So between them, do they did they have similar directing styles or like, can you talk about the directing styles of each one of them? Because again, these are all very, very good directors, award winning directors. And yeah, so. Yeah, well, you know, I just I just want to say like it, it, I, I, I'm I, I think like so many people was really affected by the passing of Jeff Barnaby. He was, um, you know, a true visionary in our field and really helped shape the landscape of indigenous cinema. Um, Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which I was not in, um, but I remember seeing at the Imaginative Film Festival back in, I think it was like 2013 or 2014. Um, that film was a, a landmark feature film for indigenous cinema. Like it, it definitely changed the game for all of us. Um, for one, at the time, it was the biggest budget ever given to, I think, an Indigenous feature. Um, and that's something we were fighting for for so long, um, getting equitable access to resources so that we could make the, the films that we wanted to make and not work with sort of just like, you know, crumbs from the pie. Um, and he really pushed his craft 
and truly owned it in that in that film. So I, you know, I, I watched it and I left feeling just so deeply moved because I knew that things were going to change for the rest of us as well in a good way. Um, and so, yeah, working with Jeff was uh, was a tremendous honor. Um, I I wasn't expecting to work with him on Blood Quantum. Um, he sent me the script and. Uh, it was like nothing I'd ever read before. He's like, it's like <laughs> there's, you know, Forrest Goodluck's character who plays my son, like takes a dump off of a bridge onto a car. And I'm like, what am I reading? And then I get into it. And it's like, it's this like beautifully politicized, um, almost satire in some ways. And then also just like, so violent, but also violent in the sense that it sort of um, puts a mirror up to settler society here in Canada and, and reflects back that violence that we as Indigenous people experience every day and have since contact. Um, so it was it was just a, such a wild ride. And I had I, I, w- I wasn't expecting to work with him and I wasn't I had no idea what to expect when I read the script. And then I just knew I wanted to I just wanted to work with Jeff and watch him work and learn from him. Um, and he knew what he wanted. He, he'd worked on that script for, uh, I think he'd worked on it for like a decade. He tried to get it made as his first feature. And he'd said that it just seemed like Canada wasn't ready for a film like that quite yet. And so he ended up making Rhymes for Young Ghouls first. So... Jeff, uh, from watching his work, looked like a very meticulous filmmaker. Uh, like I said, and, and the fact that you refer to him as like a movie nerd, like kind of like the indigenous. Actually, he's he's Mi'kmaq, wasn't he? Yeah, Jeff was Jeff was Mi'kmaq um, from Listigooch or Restigooch, as it's also known. Um, and uh, yeah, every every single scene in that film was you know shot listed and. He had very specific ideas in mind for the framing, everything. So it was uh, it was a very meticulous process. Um, it was very ambitious. Like even the fact that he, he was working with this, you know, quote unquote large budget, but it really wasn't. It was still a very small. I think budget. it's like what five million or something like that, which, as we yeah. know, is like a micro budget in the feature film world, right? So. It, Exactly. But for indigenous film that at the time it was considered a big deal. Um, And he, you know, it was a very ambitious project to make for, for that amount of money. And um, he was so committed to ensuring that his, you know, vision stayed true throughout, throughout the entire process. And um, yeah, he was like nobody I've ever really worked with before. And um, sometimes he was a tyrant. Um, (laughs) And sometimes he was difficult, but that was just his nature. And ultimately he had a good heart and a deep commitment to getting the story right. And he truly loved his people and where he came from and his language. And um, it was honestly just such a beautiful experience to be able to visit his community and shoot in his community. And um, he made sure that the whole cast went and visited the, the local school. So all of the kids from that community from like kindergarten to grade 12 um, came and hung out with us in, in the high school gym. And we got to do like a really fun Q and a with them. And um, I knew that Jeff had everything to do with facilitating that and ensuring that his community was benefiting from, from this experience and from this project. 
Mary, have you seen Blood Quantum? Oh yeah, I saw it at Imaginative and uh, it was so badass. And then I also <laughs> remember Jeff saying that he scored it as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's wild to me. And he edited it, I think. He like yeah. wrote, directed, edited, scored, like everything. Like So what? he's like he's like John Carpenter basically for Halloween, like just did all the jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I think and yeah. you know, he comes from that like school of independent filmmaking where you do everything, you know? And I think he continued to do that as a as a feature director. And, I also uh, remember Rhymes for Young Ghouls when the auditions were happening for that. And I was like, I think I was still in acting school or maybe I was a like recent graduate and I auditioned for it. And I remember thinking just like, wait, wait, there's a cool like female, young, badass, like indigenous character I can audition for. This has never happened to me before. Like, <laughs> this is so like different. Yeah, it was just, I think one of the first auditions I ever did where I was like really excited to to just audition for a role that wasn't your like sort of stereotypical like um, indigenous like all of the indigenous roles I had been auditioning for at that time were like the the victims that were like for me and like just very like one dimensional and uh, that I just remember that getting that audition was like a game changer for sure because it was. Like, oh, there are going to be rules for me that I can play a dynamic or I'll audition for a dynamic Indigenous female character and not just be the, like, the archetype of an Indigenous woman, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you also then went and worked on Night Raiders, which is also <laughs> uh, a fairly decent budget did very well uh they went to con with it they you again canadian screen awards both both of you two have been to the canadian screen awards you have won uh a ton of canadian screen awards uh but what was it like working with her as a director it was one of the best experiences of my life truly um danis also spent a long time working on this on the script um she had a lot of her own work uh, going on with uh, with advocacy for for indigenous film, like she was very much involved um, with changing uh, the landscape for indigenous cinema. So she was behind a really important report that came from Imaginative. Her and Carrie Swanson, who now runs the Indigenous Screen Office, um, did this massive report quite a few years ago um, that sort of looked at the barriers that indigenous filmmakers face in terms of getting from making shorts to making features because it was this like major gap for us there were so many of us who were making short films um, and then not making that natural transition to directing features um, and so they did this report that made it so evident that canadian funders were not giving us equitable access to to the same resources that general canadian filmmakers were were getting um, and because of that report and so much other advocacy um, Telefilm changed the way that they worked. Uh, the CMF did. The NFB did. Um, so it 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 really garnered uh, a massive shift for us. And so Dennis was busy working on that kind of stuff um, while writing her feature. So eventually, um, she she took the time to to direct Night Raiders, and it was such an incredible experience because she really challenged the way that 
uh, we make films in Canada, you know, so often uh, mainstream cinema um, works in this kind of like toxic hierarchical way. Um, and there's a, a, a real sort of like um, lack of community-based work. And um, there's also this like idea that the director is this like visionary auteur who um, calls all the shots. Um, but Danis was very much collaborative. She worked from uh, a community-based perspective and she ensured that there was cultural and spiritual support on set because we were obviously telling a really, really difficult story. Um, and her kids were often on set, which was such a special thing for me. And I think so many others, um, you know, in indigenous communities and indigenous um, gatherings, there's, there's always like multiple generations present and children are welcomed and cherished and loved in these spaces. And so often um, in non-indigenous spaces, there's, there's not really like a, an allowance for children and, and a celebration of, of what they bring to a community. And so to see Dennis bring her kids to set was, was really special, knowing that we're talking about this history of forced removal and, you know, theft of our children from our communities. Um, and then in addition to that, the film was the first international Indigenous co-production so uh, they worked with Maori producers from New Zealand. Um, so it was a New Zealand Canadian co-production, but on a deeper level, it was like a Cree Maori um, co-production, which was really special. So we had- uh, Taika Waititi, right? Yeah, yeah. Which uh, Taika Waititi and Chelsea Wynn Stanley um, and many others were involved in, in that. So it was like, it was really special just to be involved in this project that was, one of many projects changing the way that we work. And um, that certainly informed every aspect of the filmmaking process and the decisions that were made and the way that we work together. So it inherently like placed us in a space of respect um, and care. And it was also just like so much fun. Like there was so much laughter on set, which is so important given the nature of the story we were telling. So it was, it was really special to know that like in between takes, we could joke around and laugh with each other and like feel joy, despite the fact that we were telling a very difficult story. Um, and yeah, Dennis knew exactly what she wanted. She was like fully in her power as a director, um, but was in no way, um, was in no way like uh forceful about it like she was very collaborative and would offer so much in terms of being a an, an actor's director you know every every take um was different and she was so willing to try new things i mean i and, uh sorry go ahead mary go ahead i was gonna say and i know on that one violet nelson was an actor and that's someone that you had worked with before on the body members when the world broke open Oh. And she is a little, like a shining, emerging young star in the indigenous acting world. Like Violet is one of my favorite indigenous actors I've seen on screen. And I just wanted to like highlight that she was in that as well as your other, your first feature that you directed. Thank you. Yeah, I I woke up thinking about Violet this morning. That's so weird. I should probably reach out to her. But yeah. Yeah, I want to reach out to her too. I don't know how she's doing. <laughs> she was literally like in my thoughts when I woke up. Um, 
Yeah, she's she's so phenomenally talented. And we found Violet through an open casting call. Her mom kind of like convinced her to to come and audition for The Body Remembers. And that film would not be what it is if it weren't for Violet's contribution and her performance. Like watching her is so captivating. And she's like, uh, I don't know, she's truly like this old soul who takes such a... Um, a nuanced approach to all of her choices and makes really different choices. Um, and she's just so compelling to watch. And so, yeah, it was wonderful to work with her in Night Raiders. She's hilarious and like plays practical jokes on everybody all the time <laughs> um, and becomes everybody's best friend. So yeah, she's she was wonderful to work with and I'm so happy that Dennis cast her. And I really hope that Violet continues to work as an actor in this in this industry because she has so much to offer. Yeah. So the body remembers when it's the body remembers when the world broke open, correct? That's correct. That's an intense film. So is it true you guys shot it on sixteen millimeter? Yeah, yeah, we did. And you like it's excessively long takes. Like it's almost shot in a Hitchcockian to to give you the the feeling of like no editing. And so there's this in, there's this intensity to it. Uh, I, I was just like reviewing it this morning before the show, and that first scene where you enter with um, actually uh, what's you were just talking about? Yes, thank you. Um, where you're like, hey, like is that your boyfriend? Blah blah blah. And then so you're moving her down the streets, and the camera looks like it's like shoulder mounted, so it's bouncing around, and the take is super long, and so it almost feel you feel that anxiousness of like we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go down this alley, we gotta do this. It's beautiful it is a fucking phenomenal film you got you you guys did an amazing job on that thing thank you yeah we had an incredible team um i directed that with kathleen hepburn and norm lee was our cinematographer um and uh jeremy cox was our focus puller i feel like not enough people mention jeremy in terms of his skill as a focus puller because we um, we shot it on 16 millimeter and we did it as a continuous take, but that's impossible to do with 16 millimeter because the camera mags are only 11 minutes long. So um, we rehearsed to the point where we uh, choreographed 11 different camera transitions. So uh, there would be a camera preloaded and rolling that would be swapped out onto Norm's shoulder uh, at 11 different points throughout this continuous take. So we would keep going performance wise and everything we wouldn't cut. Um, and then we did that once a day for five days um, and then stitched together uh, the best sort of takes from those, um, from those 11 different, I guess it's 12 different uh, segments um, throughout the film. And so that also involved five days of like full crew rehearsal to get everything down pat because we had, I think, six or seven different locations. So we treated it like theater. Um, Violet had never acted before, and we wanted to offer her as much support as possible, given both the content and just the fact that she was a young actor. She was 17 at the time. Um, and so we uh, we did four weeks of um, rehearsal in like kind of like a a rehearsal space like theater. And then we mapped out the locations with masking tape on the floor and, and rehearsed everything as though it was a play. Um, and then when we got to the point where 
everything was fully off book and we felt like we'd kind of worked through every beat of the script with Violet, um, we, we moved into full crew rehearsal in the actual locations. So we did five days of just running through the whole film over and over and over again. Um, and then finally got to the point where we could film. And um, yeah, there's this kind of like magical tension uh, in terms of like the possibility of failure. Um, and with film, you don't often like, you don't often get that because you know that you can just yell cut and start over, do something over again. Um, but when you're not allowing for that, there's sort of this like deep focus and concentration that everybody has to sort of hone in on. And um, it also allows for uh, improvisation. So if something goes wrong, we have to respond to it as though it's like a natural thing. And so there were plenty of moments when we were actually recording where unexpected things happened and we had to improvise and just roll with it. And it creates this like really beautiful kind of natural space for performance. Um, and yeah, and we wanted, Kathleen and I wanted, and you've worked with Kathleen as well, Mary. Um, Kathleen and I wanted to create the same sort of feeling of not necessarily entrapment, but feeling of, of, of not being able to escape this moment with these two women. And so um, that was also kind of our choice with this whole continuous take thing. Um, and Norm Lee, um, who's such a talented cinematographer, um, was insistent that we work with, with film. He'd like made this like personal commitment to himself that like the next feature project he worked on would be on film. And of course we wanted to work with film, but we were like, how are we going to do this uh, with a continuous take? Um, and so Norm um, invented what he calls real-time transitions. So that was those those 12 or 11 different transitions. Um, Norm they were pretty them. hidden, right? Like yeah. they weren't obvious transitions. And also Norm was the DP on the one I did with Kathleen too, um, Never Steady, Never Still. And it was also on film and it is a whole other vibe on set when everyone knows that there's only so much film to shoot with and like hopefully no one messes anything up because you can't go again a hundred times like you just can't it's limited resources and um yeah it's it's he's a he's an incredible dp and um i think it was the same focus puller too <laughs> um what was his name again Jeremy Cox. Jeremy Cox. Yeah, I think it was Jeremy Cox too, who like that's gotta be the most terrifying job of all when you're dealing with film is if you don't get the focus right, you're not gonna know it until weeks later when it's developed. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was uh quite the process. And yeah, he did a phenomenal job, especially in those long takes where we're like walking down the street and Norm is trying to keep up with us with the shoulder or the camera on his shoulder and you know we're jumping in and out of cars and going up and down stairs like it it's it's pretty wild what uh, what everybody accomplished and you know we had this incredible sound department as well like at one point we had I think I think our sound recorders had 11 or 12 labs rolling all at once as well. So he was managing so much and was running behind us most of the time with the boom. And um, yeah, it was it was such a, a wild experience and um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. 
So both of you have actually co-directed projects. So my question to both of you is, why do you choose to co-direct and what, I mean, there's the obvious challenges, but like, what are the challenges and how do you manage the challenges? But first off to both of you, why, why co-direct? Uh, I mean, I co-directed with Miguin because um, he asked me to, and and I loved the story. I loved the vision. I love when actors want to pursue writing and directing, and I have gone on that really tough journey of making that transition. And it was Miguin's, I think, first time really directing something that length, and I wanted to be a support to my friend and and serve the story and um, the vision as best I could and to support an indigenous creative who is making that leap from performing to behind this the camera like it's it's a tough it's a tough uh transition and, and especially because he was the star of it and I've done that where you're the actor writer director and it's such a tough role to play so um so I just I like it definitely depends on who would ask me but I want to support the people that I care about and who um, are in the community. So that's why I co-directed um, the, the series recently with Miguin. And what about you? You know, I I really try and resist this idea that like directing is about just being, you know, an auteur and having this singular vision because film is like truly a collaborative medium. There are so many people that contribute invaluable knowledge and talent and resources. Um, film crews are massive. And so often those people who contribute something so important get kind of like left behind. And there's this idea that the director is, you know, the end all and be all behind anything. Um, and that's just simply not true. Um, and I, I truly appreciate the process of collaboration because I feel like it just makes the, the material richer. Um, it makes it better. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like in working with others who I respect and admire, um, I can learn from them and they can learn from me. Um, and I, you know, with The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, um, Kathleen was a dear friend um, for years before that and someone whose work I just deeply respected and admired. Um, Never Steady, Never Still is like still one of my favorite films. It's such a profoundly beautiful quiet moving um film and mary does such a phenomenal job as an actor in that um but yeah i just i just knew that in working with kathleen we could come up with this collaborative vision along with our really talented crew um and make something that you know would would uh, outlast the legacy of something i could just make on my own you know um i'm reading um Billy Ray Belcourt's novel, A Minor Chorus. I was reading it on the airplane last night. And there's this like really beautiful um, little segment in that novel where he talks about how um, art, particularly indigenous art, is about the collective. It's about a conversation with, with your community. It's about a conversation with the audience um, and how it's important to resist the I in, in sovereignty in terms of thinking about, like I'm thinking about film and narrative sovereignty and what it means to, to tell a story as an indigenous person. For me, it's about um, working collectively and collaboratively uh, because that's how we work as communities. 
Um, and so I, I try and think about that in any of anything I make, you know, it's about collaboration. It's about respecting others' visions. Um, and it's about listening to, to those you're working with and respecting them and their input, because so often it just makes what you're making so much stronger. Um, and I get yeah, Sarah Polly actually talks about about that a lot as well in her work. And I, I found it really interesting to talk about that with her on um, her latest feature, Women Talking, and, and her process um, in terms of just resisting this idea of, of the director being this like singular vision and the auteur when really it's, it's not that at all and it shouldn't be that. And um, collaboration and co-directing is, is such a wonderful process. Um, before we, you know, actually get to the film, like I said, I could, I could listen to you guys talk about film all day. Uh, you also have an amazingly powerful documentary. Uh, I'm not even going to, the, it's the meaning of empathy. And then there's a word that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. So can you talk about that? Like that's again, and what, what brought you to making that specific documentary? Cause it is so important right now. I'm a big advocate of all the stuff in that, uh, in that documentary, harm reduction, decriminalization, uh, the war on drugs is a failure, in my opinion. So, yeah, if you could just even give us that title, because I'm not going to try. <laughs> uh, so it's Gimma Bitsen, The Meaning of Empathy. And Gimma Bitsen is a Blackfoot word um, that it's, it's essentially one of our core values, which means that we survive as a people in in and through empathy for one another, that we have to take care of each other as a community and that's how we've survived so much and that's how we continue to move forward as a people. Um, and Gimabi Bitsen is about my community's response to the overdose or opioid crisis. Um, I come from Ghana or the Kainai First Nation, also known as the Blood Reserve in Southern Alberta. It's the largest reserve in Canada in terms of land mass. Um, and we were hit by uh, the opioid crisis in 2014. Um, and my mother is a physician uh, practicing at home on reserve. And I would hear about everything that she was experiencing in her work. And I was witnessing what was happening in my community. And I knew that as a filmmaker, I had some obligation to document what was happening in the community, um, in particular, because uh, so much of what was presented in the news media was kind of like through this uh, trauma porn lens, sort of this like lens of tragedy and trauma and framing us simply as victims and, and looking at the, the pain aspect of the story and not so much highlighting all of the incredible work that was happening in the community. Like there was so much community mobilization, so many people learning about harm reduction and kind of navigating the difficult conversation of what harm reduction can look like. And if it is necessary, I think it is, and many people do. Um, and so I, I felt this sort of obligation to document all of that, um, to sort of put in the archive in, in the sense that like, I just wanted people to know that my community was working so hard to, to solve this problem. Um, and we're so much more than our pain and our trauma. And um, when I started, I knew like so little about harm reduction. I think I was kind of entry level understanding like probably most people out there. Um, and so I had a lot of like unlearning to do and um, I spent a year just researching and sitting with people. I, I probably interviewed at least 50 people 
in my community and then people who work on the front lines with harm reduction um, services and policies and came to this much deeper understanding that harm reduction is truly about just having empathy for people who are struggling with substance abuse disorder. Um, and it's about meeting people where they're at and it's about saving lives and giving people the opportunity to you know, pick themselves up again and try again and to do so with the support of community and family. Um, and so, yeah, that film ended up being like a five year long journey. And um, it's, it's kind of like, um, I thought about it as like a conversation with my community um, because as the filmmaker, I had this like immense power in terms of editorial choice and that's something I really tried to resist in the process was to like think about how I can do this in a way that's more grounded in my teachings as a Blackfoot person and not as a documentary filmmaker. So how can I approach this process and um, truly reflect the multitude of voices and experiences and opinions within my community rather than just simply telling this monolithic story that came from my own perspective. And so in sitting with so many people in my community, I started to realize that there were so many different experiences and voices and opinions on, um, on these issues. And I felt like, okay, if I can try and turn this into like kind of a conversation amongst all of these people, it will offer the audience the same sort of learning journey that I've experienced, which is that, you know, there isn't one singular voice. There isn't one singular approach to how we treat this issue um, and everybody's experiences and opinions are valid. Um, and, and that's how we move forward through, you know, complicated, but very important dialogue. Um, and so, yeah, I tried to think about the film that way, less about like me as a filmmaker coming in and, you know, showing this difficult issue and more about me as a community member coming in and using my resources to um, allow other people space to speak and to share their experiences and hopefully dialogue with one another on screen over a four-year period. I feel like that approach is very much um, a part of the kind of movement that's starting to happen that still needs a lot more movement but in decolonizing the film industry because it just it's a very colonial system that we have in filmmaking and it's very toxic and it's unhealthy and it's not at all um like you were saying with the having kids on set like that's decolonizing the film set like having kids running around and having elders on set and um and not being the like auteur like my vision this is the only way that this story can be told like having it be a more collaborative and community-based approach I feel like is such a important part of decolonizing the way we tell stories and on Turtle Island and in the colonial Canada system. Do you guys both yeah. feel that uh, sorry to cut you off do you guys both feel that we are moving away from that auteur uh, director like is it happening and is it happening fast enough? Yes and no I think like if you look at I mean, this is America. I'm talking about the Academy Awards. All of the directors who were nominated are men. Um, and there were so many women this year who... Well, what did... about Sarah Pauly? She wasn't nominated as a director. 
Oh yeah, her best picture. She was got the best, but was go to a producer. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the you know the position of director, there's still this kind of like, I think it comes from a very like sort of like male centric world that still kind of dominates film, which is that there's this like, if you're really flashy with your craft, <laughs> rather than maybe taking a more gentle approach, that's more about story and. Um, and creating something that, uh, you know, that, that, that moves people in a different way. Uh, you're not necessarily rewarded in the same way. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is changing in some ways. I think it's changing in terms of indigenous cinema. There's, there's so many people out there doing incredible work and changing the way that we work and consistently reinventing the process and implementing um, approaches that are much more specific to where they come from, to their community, to um, and to the specific story that they're telling. You know, each each project is going to be different, and it's going to require sort of a different approach. And um, I can certainly say with Indigenous cinema, that's happening. Um, but I do think the mainstream industry has a long ways to go. And also, I think um, Canadian funders in particular are are still kind of like adapting and responding to this different approach uh, of filmmaking and and kind of like having to learn with us as we go. Yeah, I think it's happening. It's not happening quick enough. And it's happening from the bottom up, which is the like most grueling way to do it. Because um, I am finding myself butting up against the like bigger production companies that I would like to work with, but their idea of how how we would work together is is very much like we have to do fifteen hour days. We have to like we have to hire the people who have the experience because there's a lot of money on the line and we know they're gonna be able to do their job right. And it's like no, but we need to create opportunities. We need to bring up people who are really good at what they do. They just haven't had the chance to show it. And I'm getting pushback a lot, like no matter who I'm talking to, when it's bigger production companies or networks or whatever, where it's like, yeah, but couldn't we like do that training and like mentorship and shadowing um, for the smaller stuff, but like we can't, we can't give the bigger roles or bigger like head department jobs to inexperienced People, but it's the only experienced people, the majority of them are cis, hetero, white, able-bodied, male, like demographics. So, so there's like just not a lot of movement from the top down, which so, is really fresh. So you end up with a feedback loop, right? Like the, the key jobs go to the key people, which are the same people that the key jobs go to. And the wheel keeps on turning. We go, why are we getting no progress? <laughs> yeah. And the like the things that are happening are like internships, apprenticeships, shadowing, and there's only so much shadowing a girl can do. <laughs> it doesn't pay your bills. You can't eat shadowing, right? So it's mostly for me that I have so many ideas and opinions when I'm shadowing. I'm like, I would do it like this. I'm here to listen and watch. So yeah, that, that, that's, um, that's, it's just tough when it's, uh, not the decision makers that are making the changes. Yeah, absolutely. 
So before we move to Slashback, I have one more question for you. Is there a way to watch your short film Rebel? I, I couldn't find a, like, okay. I could find the trailer, but I could yeah. never find the, like, full thing to purchase or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I should really try and make that available somehow. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think, uh, this uh, Sami Film, which is a streaming platform out of Norway uh, through the Sami Film Institute, I think they offer it as, like, a rental um, it's charged as Norwegian Kruna, um, so it looks like it's a lot more than it actually is. Yeah, which is actually like I think it's like I, I don't even. It's, it's like it's like ten, the equivalent of like maybe like ten dollars or something. I don't know. Um, but it's yeah, it's a fourteen-minute uh, kind of like hybrid doc about my family and my father's experience going through the Sami boarding school system. Um, in Norway, Sweden, and Finland, um, much like Canada and the United States, they had boarding schools specifically for Sami children, which were about assimilation and removing Sami children from community. Um, and that experience was very harmful for him and led to like a lifetime of, of struggles. And, uh, and, you know, I experienced intergenerational trauma in very real, tangible ways. And so the film is about that, but it's also about love and um, intergenerational strength and um, you know my deep admiration and respect for my parents and everything that they'd been through um, yeah and and that was actually thanks to Dennis Goulet that that film was made uh, because it was part of the imaginative embargo collective project um, and so she 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 helped us make those films she she was behind that project um, so yeah. Anyway, I, I guess to answer your question, I think it's available maybe through the Sammy film streaming platform. <laughs> I'll, I'll try it. I'll try. I think I maybe saw it and it had like 200 or something. And I was like, what? $200 yeah, to yeah. rent a movie? What the it's heck? Norwegian, and it's a short. Norwegian Kruna. So the conversion makes it like a lot less than you think it is. It's like maybe like five to $10 or something. I, I don't know. I should know, but I don't. <laughs> Mary, you got anything else before we, uh, actually get to the film we're supposed to be talking about <laughs> oh do i have anything else like just in general to, to talk about or <laughs> or with her or whatever like this is the problem like both you guys are super interesting and super talented like we could just just talk i could just run like multiple podcasts just with you two right so yeah no i mean i want to dig into slashback all right uh well yeah guys take it away so is it do you pronounce your name nyla anusuk anusuk Inuk Suk, yeah. Okay, it was uh, close. Nyla is um, Inuk on her father's side, and then her mother is a, a settler Canadian. Okay, uh, so what do you guys what do you guys think of this film? I loved it. That's why I want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. This is actually our sex. So we actually covered it. Uh, I was telling Mary before you jumped on. Uh, we did a bunch of shows for Reconciliation Month. Uh, so we had Jeff Barnaby. We did Rhymes for Young Ghouls. Uh, we did Beans. We did this one. We did another one. I just can't remember which one. Um, and I loved it because S Scott's really into horror. So he was like, wow, I liked it. But like, I wish the monster was better. But whatever. But in general, we loved it. Uh, it was like it was like the thing meets Stranger Things or the Goonies. Uh, I actually would love to see this as almost like a Scooby-Doo style like show where like every week they uh, f go and fight monsters. And at the end, we find out it's just like a white capitalist, you know, doing bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was it's such an important 
film for so many reasons. Um, I, I was thinking about it yesterday and I think it's so remarkable that Inuit youth who are facing so much hardship and, uh, you know, I'm sure when they turn on the news, all they see is sad stories about their communities, about, you know, lack of housing, about suicide epidemics, um, about, you know, a lack of access to basic resources like affordable food, um, all of these things. I think it's so special that they can turn to this film and see this beautiful representation of their people, of their community, their culture, their language. Um, that's essentially like a, a beautiful, like underdog hero story um, where Inuit technology and language and all of those things are celebrated and, and ultimately win. Um, it's so, I think it's so important for youth to be able to see these types of representations of themselves on screen and in a way that is like so broadly accessible to the public as well, because, you know, these images, these stories that we see of ourselves on screen are ultimately internalized in, in so many ways. And, you know, I think about growing up and what did I have at that age in terms of representations of my people on screen. I had like Dances with Wolves, um, Dance Me Outside, uh, you know, kind of like the obvious ones that came from non-Indigenous creators. Like Dance Me Outside is a really important film just in terms of Indigenous representation on screen, but it came from W.P. Kinsella and Bruce McDonald, who are both white men. Um, and I started to think about that film in particular yesterday, and I was like, it's, it's a highly celebrated film, but it's also a really sad film. It's about a young Indigenous woman being murdered and this young friend group's response to that. And I think about like, man, if that's a film that I like celebrated and watched over and over again as like a 11, 12 year old girl, what sort of like narrative am I internalizing and what sort of feelings is that giving me in terms of my own self identity as a young Indigenous girl? And so to know that Inuit youth can watch Slashback and see this like incredibly empowering representation of themselves that's like joyful to watch that's like hopeful and also just a celebration of who they are and where they come from like that's such a remarkable thing and I think it's going to have this like beautiful ripple effect for years to come um and I don't even care that it's like you know there's there's these like such like obvious critiques of the film like oh the monster is not good enough I don't care I think the monster was super scary and I think it's just like so cool like when have you ever seen a group of like four Inuit girls fight aliens <laughs> and use Inuit technology and language and culture and like literally like save the day um I think that's so special Nyla is such a badass for making that film and like I think it's such an important thing, not only for Inuit youth, but for Indigenous youth as a whole. Um, and the fact that it played itself by Southwest is also like super cool because it just means that Indigenous stories, Indigenous films um, can, you know, hold their place and stand their ground in, you know, huge mainstream festivals like South by Southwest. Well, and South by Southwest too is like, I mean, you know, it's, it's the less arty, it's the more like hip and cool. 
right? Like getting in the South by Southwest is just like, you're like, I have arrived and I've got like the coolest vibe out here. So yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's so exciting to see those girls are just like you said, so badass. And the fact that they, there's like the ones that are like really connected with their culture. And there's the one lead protagonist who's like, wants to be a city girl and stuff like that. And, and it's just, I'm sure that as women and as indigenous women, it's like you can see yourselves in one or all of those characters at some points in your life. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And like the performances of the, like the kids, like they were all so great. And like that's hard to direct, like have one kid be in your thing, but it was like all kids and it's in a remote location, which I know had its own challenges of even, I think just housing the crew. I, if I remember or feeding the crew, I don't remember what she said, but like, it was tough. It was hard to, film and it just turned out so incredible and so fun and so engaging and like I was on the edge of my seat the whole time and uh I also like Maya don't care if the monster CGI or whatever could have been better I bought it I was all in on it and I was rooting for them the entire time well and they say don't work with children or animals and she worked with both (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah I think it's like um Jeff Barnaby used to talk about this, and I think it's such an important thing to mention, which is that to be a filmmaker inherently means that you probably are coming from privilege. Like it is a privilege to be even be able to make a film. And I think that this film kind of speaks to that in terms of the very obvious barriers that maybe aren't so obvious to the rest of Canadian filmmakers. Um, that that Nyla and her team faced. Like there's no hotels in Pang. So all of the cast and crew had to stay in schools. They had to bunk up together. Um, and it just costs so much more, you know, and I think it's a reminder that, you know, f- um, food security is a massive issue in the North and just your everyday person can't afford groceries because it's so expensive even to buy the most obvious things at the grocery store Um, and it really speaks to the inequity that exists in Canada and the deep marginalization of of Indigenous people particularly those who live in the north and remote communities and to 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 make a film in the north is a huge undertaking um, for those reasons for these like very very um strong issues of of inequity and essentially oppression and marginalization that absolutely do not need to exist you know the canadian government can subsidize these things they can (laughs) they can tax the corporations they can tax gas and oil companies and they can subsidize food in the north so that people up there aren't having to you know make these very difficult choices between housing and food and and all of that um and so i think the fact that nyla was able to make this film with all of those barriers is such a such an important thing it needs to be celebrated and it also um kind of shines a light on the fact that filmmakers from the north face exceptional barriers ones that like the rest of us who live in urban settings or in places that you know we we take film for granted um need to be reminded that that there are issues in this country that are much deeper than just like getting funding for your film the, the, definitely the advantage of shooting in the north is like you can't turn the camera and not get amazing cinematography <laughs> like the north is so beautiful and when you get to see it in the hands of a great cinematographer too you're just like 
wow, like we definitely need to take care of this. Like this is such opulent, beautiful landscape. And, you know, like you said, you know, not everything that those people have to deal with is tragic. Like they live in this beautiful place. They have beautiful community. Most of the stuff that's bad is actually because of people that kind of look like me or my ancestors kind of fucked up for them. <laughs> if you just leave them alone and they, they will take care of themselves. Um, I do like that you brought up Jeff again, though, because the the use of like specifically indigenous women in kind of trauma porn situations in film jeff's character in rhymes with the young ghouls uh elea played by Deborah jacobs literally spawned a sociological term that's a litmus test about the appropriate use of indigenous uh people or women in the arts so do they have enough screen time do they suffer abuse sexual or otherwise and it's just like fuck man this guy on this very small amount of time on his on the planet just is like fucking kicking doors open and just like flamethrower and shit like the end of like uh once upon a time in hollywood or something you know what i mean yeah (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely it's uh it's remarkable to think about like this long history of the same narrative of of indigenous women both in literature and film and the arts where wherein we are the the product of suffering like suffering is the core identity of so many characters we see in literature and on screen um in terms of indigenous women and 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 the way we're presented to the world and that comes from a whole lot of non-indigenous people telling stories about us and so i think when we talk about narrative sovereignty and screen sovereignty for indigenous people those stories will inherently change when it's us telling our own stories, when it's us creating characters for the world to see that actually represent the women we know in our communities and the two-spirit people and the non-binary people that we know in our communities, um, because we are not just these, you know, tragic monolithic characters. Um, And that's so special. And, And we see that in Slashback, like to see these four young girls who are all so different, but who are so real. Like, I feel like I was watching myself at that age. I felt like I was watching my young nieces at that and and what they're facing. You know, they're so um, modern and funny, but also so proud of who they are and where they come from. And also just like, you know, facing the standard existential challenges of tweens, um, which is so cool to see because it's like so rarely I think do indigenous youth get to see these sort of beautifully authentic representations of themselves on screen and to feel seen and heard is such an important thing. Mary as a as an indigenous young indigenous actor as well what you know she had dances with wolves what did you have like you you're you're much younger so you had better representation i'm hoping i don't know if i'm much younger but i appreciate that you think that um but my my representation the only thing i glommed on to in my youth was pocahontas really oh wow Pocahontas I was like I am Pocahontas and little did I know at that time that that is actually a tragic story of our first stolen sister and um it's it's you know that is the only thing that I could see myself in and that is not a good (laughs) representation at all it's very stereotypical and um yeah and they didn't tell it accurately of the true story of who that's actually based off of 
Um, so yeah, that that's what I had. So, but now you have like stuff like re- like you stuff like uh, Slashback or Res Dogs. Like Res Dogs is hilarious. Like that mm. those both all those all those young actors are just killing it in Hollywood too. Oh yeah, it's incredible, and I really am enjoying the shift now that the indigenous uh, stories are taking, where it is branching out from telling the like tough part of our of our truth and our history. We're starting to see things like slashback, um, where where we get to just be cool characters telling fun stories like i i think there's a really important part of our storytelling what which is telling the hard truths of what has happened to us and um and all of the the tragedies that are in the community that is such an important part of of our voices being heard but i'm really liking the the now sort of next wave of getting to tell our stories where it's not about that at all. It's just about telling an entertaining story and and reaching, I feel like, broader audiences and just be seeing ourselves on screen in many different ways. It's amazing what happens when you let people tell their own stories. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Like there's this authenticity that I didn't know was there. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder why my characters aren't three dimensional because I have no idea of what those characters really went through, right? So yeah. <laughs> uh, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about, uh, about Slashback or, you know, uh, work that you have coming up or anything like that? Like I said, like, I, I could just pick your guys' brains forever. There's so much institutional knowledge on my screen right now uh, as, a, as a filmmaker myself uh, to just learn from. So, <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I, I'm just I'm just excited that we got to talk about Slashback a little bit and I really hope people watch it. It's available on Crave in Canada. Um, and I think it's still on like Air Canada flights, uh, if you're lucky enough to have a screen. Um, and yeah, it's just, just been an honor to chat with you guys. And Mary, I'm so excited for all of your new projects. You're just like so busy and it's so good to hear. Yeah. Oh, same to you. I cannot wait for Little Bird. We didn't even talk about Little Bird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh actually, uh, Little Bird, uh, the DP I worked with on Little Bird is named Guy Godfrey and Guy shot Slashback. Um, so I got to hear from Guy about his experiences of shooting in Pang and, you know, how honored he was as, you know, a settler Canadian to be able to go to the North and work on this incredible film and to, you know, be faced with like, uh, sort of the challenges that 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 filmmakers face when when working in the north and um, how the crew just sort of for the most part was like very keen to just make it happen and roll with the punches and um, yeah I, I'm I'm really glad I had had the chance to work with Guy on Little Bird and just to hear about his work on on Slashback with Nyla. And when does that come out? Or when's the release date for that? Uh, Little Bird will be available on Crave in Canada. Um, May 26th, I believe. Okay. Hey, quick mm-hmm. question before you go, though. Uh, what was it like working with Amanda Plummer? <laughs> oh, gosh, she was so fantastic. She is like, honestly, you know, when you, you meet someone and it feels like they're kind of like channeling something from like another sort of dimension in a way that's like almost spiritual. Um, It was like, she was kind of like bursting with this creativity that she had no control over. Like 
it, it's purely natural and she just works from this like really instinctual place that I think a lot of actors really just dream of of being able to to do in front of the camera um, and she's so generous and kind and funny and weird in the best way um, honestly I learned a lot just working with her and I was kind of like a little bit starstruck the first time I met her because I was like oh my god you're Amanda Plummer <laughs> but she was like had no ego was so amazing um, and she <laughs> generally when you finish a project you like ask to take something from the set or from your wardrobe you know just as like a little keepsake and and usually production will agree to that and um her character had this cat um who was like really not actually a very friendly cat it had a handler but it would like always like scratch and bite and stuff um but there was this like really funny like kitsch painting of a cat in her, you know, shack that she lived in. And Amanda just like really wanted to take that cat painting home. So that's what she ended up taking home of like out of everything she could have taken. She wanted this like thrift store, like 1970s <laughs> terrible cat painting. Um, and yeah, anyway, it was wonderful to work with her. I learned so much and she's just like such a, a gifted actor in so many ways. What did you take? <laughs> What did I take? Oh my God. What did I take? I feel like I took a piece of clothing. I'll usually take like one wardrobe piece and I have this kind of like whole collection in my closet of, of one piece of wardrobe of, from everything I've worked on. So by the end of your career, you'll be the eclectic person taking the weird cat <laughs> painting home or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll run out of space in my closet. I feel like I should take a, a cue from Amanda and, and, and start taking pieces of the set instead. <laughs> I have my favorite mug is a mug from Ruthless Souls. And um, I just like when I, when the props person gave it to me, I made such a big deal about, oh, my God, this is the perfect mug. And then at the end, she was like, here, I think you should take this. Like, yes. You, you know, you guys can just like steal stuff, right? <laughs> like nobody once production's on most of that stuff, nobody gives a shit about. So yeah. <laughs> that's the way man way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if the shoe fits. <laughs> Listen, uh, both of you, oh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I feel uh, so blessed and lucky uh, that I got to be here and interview both of you. Again, Mary, you're always welcome on the show. Both of you are always welcome. I'm so glad to have Mary back again. I'm so glad you were here to talk with... Uh, I, I just, you noticed I've been avoiding saying your name because I don't want to fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. my list. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, and then in our show notes, we'll put as many links so people can see your work and all that type of stuff. Uh, because like uh, our show is all about just getting, you know, independent filmmakers and stuff out to the world. The one advantage of the podcast is it's kind of really inexpensive way. And listen, no one has seen a middle-aged white man do a film podcast yet. This is, we're breaking new ground here, so... <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for having me it was so wonderful to get to talk to you maya and chris always a joy to see you too and um yeah our deepest condolences to mm -hmm. scott and his family and um just Heichka. i raise my hands to both of you and to all the listeners for being here and celebrating indigenous female badass filmmaking that is <laughs> El maya tail feathers Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, you, and, and and you know, all of those things will always have a really important place here on our podcast. Like I said, we we love to showcase Indigenous women and their filmmaking or or LBGTQ or anything like 
fucking break the patriarchy, you know, tear it all down, rebuild it because it comes back better. So awesome. All right. Ciao guys. All right. Thank you. And that is our wrap for the day. Please like and subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends. If you want to get a hold of us, reach us at the www.howdyoulikethatmovie.com. Scott, so I just did my Oscar show. I had two really great guests on for that. And we ran like an hour and 45 minutes. This is going to be another hour. And so Scott was messaging me while we were talking. He's just like, so what I'm taking is you have way more fun when I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) So. Production by Rod Shaver, Fader Monkey Productions.